Good morning, everyone. You can turn, if you want, to Matthew chapter 13 and uh, find your place there, which is where we'll be today. Um, it's a privilege to be with you guys this morning. I, I can't speak for how you're all feeling today. Um, now that we finally have, apparently, the election results behind us, there may be a wide range of feelings that you guys are having, people who are feeling relief, maybe elation, maybe disappointment, maybe hopelessness, maybe indifference. No matter where you find yourself on that spectrum this morning, guys, the only thing that's going to give us lasting peace and satisfaction is trusting and knowing that our God is good and that he is in control. And so as we look to him this morning and not our ever-changing circumstances, may we find peace, may we find satisfaction, may we find a vision for a way forward. And this is why we go back to his word every week to ground us in the unchanging truth of who our God is. So Matthew chapter 13 is where we'll be today in verses 31 to 33, and we're going to be looking at two additional parables that Jesus shares with his disciples in the listening crowd. Matthew 13, 31 to 33. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its, nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Just pray with me one more time. Father, we pray that you would be, just make your presence known this morning, especially that your Holy Spirit would work in powerful ways in our heart to open the eyes of our heart to see new things and wonderful things in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's probably helpful just for a moment for me to kind of go over with you our context, where we've been um, over the past few weeks in, in, in order to understand why Jesus is even sharing these parables now at this time. The past couple of weeks, we've taken a look at other parables. We've taken a look at the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. When we examine what Jesus had to say in the parable of the sower, we came to understand that there would be many for whom the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, would not stick. You had those Jesus described as unresponsive to the gospel, where the seed would fall on hard paths. Impulsive, where there'd be an initial acceptance, but then a kind of a quick rejection of it as the seeds fell on the rocky soil, which would spring roots, but then be scorched by the sun as it came up. And you had those who'd be preoccupied, who would accept the gospel, but quickly that message and the good news and its influence in their life would be choked out by the cares and riches of the world. And then, of course, there was the seed that fell on good soil, but that's kind of in the minority of the different examples that Jesus gives in this, in this parable. The, the emphasis feels like there would be so many for whom the gospel is not going to stick. Then you have the parable of the weeds uh, that we took a look at, where Jesus teaches this reality and, and, and informs our expectations that evil will coexist with good in this world up and until the judgment. So you can understand how at this point in time, there might have been some quizzical looks on the faces of Jesus' disciples and uh, the crowds asking themselves the question, if God 
if God's word is going to be rejected by so many, the parable of the sower, and those who reject the gospel are going to be allowed to remain, the parable of the weeds, then how is this kingdom ever going to grow? Is the natural question that arises out of hearing those two parables back to back. The flip side of that same coin that Jesus may have been anticipating as a question, and so why he shares the parable of the mustard seed and leaven, is if Jesus came to inaugurate this new kingdom, then why haven't the results been more obvious and impressive? So there may have been some level of confusion and disillusionment in these moments as people were hearing these parables, asking questions like, what kind of kingdom is it that would allow evil to remain? Where's the revolution? Why haven't the kingdoms of the world been turned upside down yet? It's not really so different than some of the questions that we may find ourselves asking. If Jesus is for real, why aren't there more people who are coming to Christ? Why don't we have more Christians of influence in our land who are asserting themselves and their influence to bring change where it's needed? And if the kingdom is real, then why does evil so often seem to prevail? And on the one hand, these are legitimate concerns and questions. Could it be that more people aren't coming to Christ, more Christians aren't stepping up to lead and influence, that evil is prevailing because of the failure of the church to exercise courage and faith and to speak out against evil? Sure. And so we need to be discerning about where that may be possible for us. But where these things may be true, they are always true on some level because we live in a broken world and the church has not escaped that brokenness. There's always room to be critical of the church and its failings. But here's the thing about these parables that Jesus tells, especially of the leaven and the mustard seed we see today. They seem to presuppose that this will be our experience in this world apart from the primary reason being the failure of the church. In other words, these parables don't describe the kingdom as a result of the church's failure. They describe how God has designed the kingdom to operate and grow in the economy of a fallen and broken world. They describe a reality that is by design. And so these parables, I think, specifically of the mustard seed and the leaven today, aim to recalibrate our understanding of how the kingdom will function and even thrive in this world. And the latest examples come through object lessons or illustrations of a mustard seed and leaven. First, Jesus says the kingdom is like this minuscule mustard seed that grows into the largest of garden plants. All right, now, this mustard seed, as some of you may have wondered or even researched, isn't the smallest of all known seeds to man. There's an uh, a seed from an orchid plant that's smaller, maybe even some others. But it was the smallest seed that his agrarian audience was familiar with in their regular routine of planting gardens and sowing seeds in fields. And it was very, very, is very, very small. It's the size of a pinhead. And the other thing you need to know about Jesus using a mustard seed as an illustration here is it had become something of a proverbial expression amongst the people in his day as meaning something that's very, very small. So we even know this from the Bible where Jesus elsewhere uses the mustard seed to illustrate the kind of faith that can actually move mountains. Very, very small faith even can move mountains. But even within the culture at large outside of the Bible, the Jews, for example, use this expression to describe a, just a tiny breach of the ceremonial law. 
and they would call that a defilement as small as a mustard seed. So it had just become a common expression to indicate something very small. But we also need to understand the point that Jesus is making here isn't just about how small the mustard seed is, but also how surprisingly large something so small could produce of a plant, which these plants, they're more like a plant than a tree from my understanding and what I've seen, can get to 10 to 12 feet tall, which actually would have been the largest of the plants people typically would have grown in their gardens. I was thinking about how maybe if Jesus was teaching this parable in, on, in coastal California, which I've been many times because that's where my wife is from, and he was, you know, amongst people who were familiar with the redwoods, maybe he would have used that as an example instead. I remember being um, at a a state park um, near the Bay Area and finding actually a surprisingly small pine cone at the base of the largest redwood in this particular forest. And you, the, when they're dry, you can almost shake them and kind of hear the seeds inside and one fell out. And it looks like, um, a, like an oat, like a, uh, what do they call them? Like the shaved oats that you make oatmeal out of, but like half the size. And I thought to myself, as I looked up at this tree, which was about 20 feet in diameter and nearly 300 feet tall, it looked like something out of a Lord of the Rings set, how could something so big come from something so small to begin with? I think this is the point that Jesus is making here. Kingdom growth often starts with something small and seemingly insignificant, but it eventually becomes something so great that the origin story can't even account for it anymore. That's what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. Second, he says the kingdom also works the way that leaven does. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to be anything of a baker, but here's what I know. Leaven is a small lump of dough that already has these microscopic organisms called yeast in it that's then added to a larger lump that needs that leaven to spread throughout, which it does, in order for the dough to rise. So you have this unseen leaven. You can't see it. It's microscopic that spreads in ways that aren't obvious from the outside, but its effects are pervasive. It spreads throughout the entire thing and causes it to rise, which you can see. And I think Jesus' point is this. The kingdom spreads in ways that are not obvious from the outside, but its effects are pervasive and can eventually be seen. Okay. We will spend more time digging into detail about both of those and some of their differences, but let me say something about where there's overlap here between both of these parables and just acknowledge the fact that in some ways Jesus was just trying to make the same point using two different common illustrations people would have known. That of a mustard seed and gardening or agriculture and that of a a very familiar thing to many in their own homes, making a loaf of bread. So where there's overlap here is in Jesus making the point that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is counterintuitive. Both of these, the mustard seed and the leaven, portray small beginnings, slower processes, and unexpected results. And both also point to how different the kingdom of heaven is from the kingdoms of this world. For example, rather than a powerful, conquering king who invades and subdues his subjects— kind of a top-down, overt display of power and force. God has determined that the kingdom of heaven's growth would come through the weak, often unimpressive subjects who are convinced of the goodness and love of their king and then seek to influence other would-be subjects to join them in this kingdom. It's kind of a a bottom-up, subtle influence of grace and truth which occurs more slowly. 
See, many of the kingdoms of this world impress for their size and their splendor and what they achieve and how quickly they achieve it. But growth in worldly kingdoms, growth of the number of citizens or the territories that are occupied, always has been accomplished through military victories. And splendor, the magnitude of what is accomplished through uh, infrastructure that's created and architecture that's built, is often achieved on the backs of conquered people through forced slavery. And for many of the citizens or the subdued people of these empires, the great empires in history, the Roman Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Islamic Empire, the British Empire, these people did not choose to be citizens of these kingdoms. And in fact, many of these empires finally crumbled when those citizens actually rised up and revolted against those who had subdued them. The kingdom of God is so very different and is impressive for a very different reason. Because it started off very, very small, seemingly insignificant, and its spread took place slowly over the course of hundreds of years. But this kingdom, God's kingdom, is comprised of those who've willingly submitted themselves to its king and to his good rule in their lives. In other words, they're a part of this kingdom because they want to be. They chose to be. Which of those kingdoms is likely to last? Which of these kingdoms is likely to ultimately wield more influence in the end? The one whose subjects have been conquered and oppressed, or the one whose subjects revere and love their king so much that they want to tell other people about him and would even be willing to lay their lives down for him? So these parables that Jesus gives us Help us to learn something about the nature of God's kingdom, which is so different, even counterintuitive, from the kingdoms we know of in this world. And that helps to explain why the kingdom of heaven operates so differently and counterintuitively to the world around us. It's a kingdom in which people choose to be a part because of its desirability and because they realize they'd be foolish not to be. All right. So that's where some of the overlap exists. But now let's go back and take a closer look at these parables and draw out some of the principles from them, both on the macro level of see we, how we've seen them uh, work in the world historically, but also on the micro level of how they play out in our everyday personal lives. So you have the parable of the mustard seed, which again is meant to reveal that kingdom growth is often small, and seemingly obscure and insignificant in its beginnings. Yes, the outcome of the spread of this kingdom is guaranteed by what we see in these parables, and we know that even from other things that Jesus said, like, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But it's often difficult to see how that's going to happen, especially with those small, obscure beginnings. So on the macro level, think about how this kingdom began. You have a dozen ragtag disciples. And even that group wasn't so impressive. It was comprised of uneducated fishermen like Peter and social pariahs like Matthew the tax collector who wrote the gospel that we've been in and violent rebels like Simon the Zealot, 12 of them. Oftentimes, they would find themselves in this group rejected, ostracized, kind of seen as outcasts in society, persecuted even, especially by the religious elites. Jesus spent three years with them then he, their leader, dies, and he leaves, leaves them to carry on his words and his works. From the outside looking in, they're a mustard seed, if that's what the kingdom of God is starting with. A small, insignificant group 
not likely to be taken seriously by the most important in society. But 2,000 years later, here we are. Christianity as the world's largest religion at over 2 billion adherents with followers on every continent and in most countries in the world today. How did this happen? Something so great and prolific that the origin story can't make sense of it. It happened because God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is a kingdom of power. Not of man's power, but of God's. And God works through the ordinary and the insignificant to produce something great. This is the paradoxical economy of the kingdom of God. Now, in the micro level, here's how this parable of the mustard seed works out. I know that for me personally, I oftentimes feel like a mustard seed in this sense. What can I do to help God's kingdom grow? Oftentimes, my own personal weaknesses and shortcomings plus what feels like a constant uphill battle against the culture around me, makes me feel like my small acts of faithfulness aren't really accomplishing anything. Here's the interesting thing about this parable. It affirms that feeling, but it denies that reality. Yes, faithfulness as kingdom citizens often feels insignificant, even inconsequential. Jesus acknowledges as much here. That's why he uses the, the mustard seed to illustrate. But at the same time, He promises that these efforts don't go unrewarded, that these seemingly inconsequential seeds, God will grow into something that makes no sense given its starting point. But it takes faith to believe that. As humans, and more specifically, even as Christians, I think oftentimes we're motivated to action by the possibility of some big impact that we can have. Kind of the go big or go home attitude. But underneath that belief is oftentimes the belief that unless we can see the end result, it's not really worth it. But contrary to that, here Jesus is commending the small incremental choices and actions that will ultimately yield a big growth, kingdom growth. Paul kind of conveys and captures this idea of the, of the power of God behind these small acts of faithful obedience on the part of his people, God's people. When he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 that when it comes to kingdom growth, there are some who will sow seeds, some who will water, but it's God who gives the growth. Otherwise, that sowing of seeds and watering amounts to nothing. So God supernaturally empowers simple acts of obedience that over time will yield fruit. This is, that's the micro level. The macro level, we see that happen 12 followers to 2 billion over 2 millennia. The micro level takes place through the simple acts of daily obedience that over time yields changed lives. Some of that which you'll see and be privy to, a lot of it which you'll not, you won't be. But the parable that Jesus tells guarantees that the kingdom will grow. And the mechanism that God most frequently uses are seemingly insignificant people and seemingly inconsequential acts of obedience that he infuses with his power to bring a growth disproportionate to that original seed. It's that time that you picked up the phone and you called a friend who you knew was suffering. It's that time that you sensed somebody was hurting and you preemptively offered to pray for them. It's the time that you stepped in to watch someone's children for them so that they could get out of the house and build into their marriage. It's that time that you thought to include somebody in your outing that you sensed was starting to isolate. 
It's that extension of preemptive love and forgiveness towards somebody who has hurt you. It's that time you risked sharing some hard words with a friend who you realized was going down the wrong path. It's that time you chose to turn off your phone and actually play some Legos or Nerf guns with your kids. I remember for me a more specific example of what may have appeared to be just a small act of faithful obedience to others. Years ago, running into um, somebody that I'd worked with uh, as a fellow camp counselors, we were more acquaintances than friends because we'd only spent the three months of that summer together, um, but I had a deep respect for him. I hadn't seen or talked to him since. This was probably three or four years later where this occurred, but um, I remember he came, he came up to me, and he gave me a big hug, and he said that he loved me, and that he had been praying for me throughout those years, and it was really sincere, and it caught me off guard because it felt so undeserved, and I'm sure he didn't know this and doesn't to this day. I, I, just, I, I don't know if I've even seen him since then. But that significantly impact, that small, seemingly insignificant act on his part significantly impacted me in that moment and grew the kingdom of God in my heart, my understanding of what his love is like. Small, seemingly insignificant acts that God uses to build his kingdom. That's the mustard seed. That's the micro-level application for us as pilgrims following after Jesus. Then there's the parable of the leaven which has a lot of similarities as we've talked about, but also has some differences. See, leaven is also something that's small and seemingly insignificant, but the emphasis, I think, in Jesus using leaven now as the illustration is more on how the leaven does its work, how the kingdom works its way out, rather than the disparity in size between the starting point and the end product. See, this parable is meant to reveal the way in which the kingdom grows, which is from the inside out. Not the conquering of lands and peoples through force in order to subdue them, but a transformation that takes place in the unseen regions of people's hearts and minds and then evidences itself through the change that's brought about in culture and society. Remember, you can't see, you can't see leaven and its working, but you can see its effects. On the macro level, it can be seen throughout history. Wherever Christianity has taken deep root in people's hearts, it was evidenced through great contribution to society and the areas of the arts and culture and politics and philosophy and philanthropy. But those things were a natural byproduct of an internal transformation that was taking place, the true spread of the kingdom in people's hearts. One commentator kind of expands on the outward evidences of the spread of the kingdom throughout history and the history of the church. He says, despite its failures and sins, it is beyond question that down through the ages, the church has had an amazing record in medical care, social work, education, liberation of women and slaves, and the defense of prisoners, the aged, the helpless, and those whom society neglects. The first institution for the blind was founded by Thalatius, a Christian monk. The first free dispensary, which is where they were giving medical supplies away for free, was founded by Apollonius, a Christian merchant. The first hospital was founded by Fabiola, a Christian woman. Hidden and obscure, though the kingdom may be, it has and continues to have an undeniable effect upon society. It is yeast in the flour. That's the macro effect of the spread of the kingdom and how it evidences itself. On the micro level, the principle is the same. Society is not going to change out there unless something first changes in here in people's hearts. 
This is both, I think, instructive for us missionally as missionaries, but also diagnostically as those who need to kind of take our spiritual temperature once in a while. So here's what I mean by both of those things. By missionally, I just mean our humble role in making disciples, all right? Our role in facilitating the growth of kingdom citizenship, of sharing the love of God and the gospel with others. This parable is instructive missionally in that it signals the priority for Christians to be engaged in that which most directly affects hearts. Changes in culture and societal structure can create an environment for heart change, but in itself, that isn't what changes hearts. Ask yourself, both biblically and experientially, what is the greatest agent of, that God uses to change hearts? What was it in your life? Of course, the, the Holy Spirit here is a given. He is the ultimate activator, but I'm talking about the initiator, what God uses to spark heart change. It's not primarily a culture that conforms to a biblical worldview. It's the gospel incarnated through individual lives and relationships. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love, the love that people see we have for one another and the love that we have for our neighbors. It all goes back to those seemingly insignificant and seemingly inconsequential daily choices that we make out of love for Jesus and others. Now, it's not an either-or here. I'm not saying that it's only personal relationships or working for societal change. It's both. In fact, they're kind of a, a yin and a yang to each other. They're kind of interdependent upon one another or complementary to each other. All right? Hearts change, which eventually may evidence itself through societal change, which in turn creates an environment that's richer for human flourishing, which can help to lower barriers for the spread of the gospel. So it's kind of a symbiotic relationship there. So for example, where somebody is starving or, or dying because they lack medical care, sharing the gospel with them that God offers true life and place and meaning through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, that doesn't do them much good if their baseline quality of life hinders their being even able to hear the gospel to begin with. On the other hand, ensuring that the conditions are available for human flourishing without the priority of reaching hearts with the gospel, just enables people to pursue a better quality of life on the pathway to destruction. So again, society isn't going to change in the visible realm until hearts are changed in the invisible realm. So the practical application for us here is, Terra Nova, in this season, let's double down on living out what it means to love each other well and to love our neighbors well. We desire, we work for, we pray for a country and a world that functions in a way that fosters things like life and liberty. But we're also promised that these things aren't always a guarantee. And God has actually done some of his most transformative work in hearts through societies which have sought to extinguish Christian values. So if the kingdom of God is about change in the unseen realm of human hearts, then our priority as missionaries is first and foremost to be agents of this kind of heart change through personal relationships that are characterized by the sacrificial love of Jesus, our King. Also on the micro level, this parable of the leaven is instructive to us diagnostically as citizens of the kingdom, all right, in terms of taking our spiritual temperatures, because if the kingdom if the kingdom's spread is pervasive, like leaven's spread is pervasive through an entire lump of dough, 
that should also be evidenced in the spread of the kingdom through every aspect of our lives as pilgrims, as personal individuals following Jesus. So not just as a profession of faith, not just as a strong stance that we take on one particular issue, not just attending church on a Sunday morning or tribe or even having a daily devotional, but it should be pervasive through all of our lives, our conversations, our friendships, our dreams, our goals, our work, our play, our chores, our thought life, all of it. If the kingdom is functioning in our lives like Jesus describes here in the parable of the leaven, then it should touch every area of our life. I believe that's a part of what he's saying here. And the key to the leaven's complete takeover is really the faith to believe what Jesus has to say that we're going to be looking at next week in the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. Because, you see, we won't let the kingdom of heaven touch that which we're not willing to give up. And if we're not willing to give it up, it's simply because we're not convinced the kingdom of heaven is a better treasure or worth more than what the kingdoms of this world have to offer us. So we'll turn there next week and consider more of what Jesus is saying through those parables. As we turn to celebrating the Lord's Supper in a moment, I want you to consider with me how the counterintuitive nature of God's kingdom is even reflected in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that we celebrate in communion. From our perspective, the cross is extremely significant, you and I would say, with hindsight, but at the time of Jesus' death, it was perceived by his disciples very much like a mustard seed in a sense. His disciples actually scattered when Jesus went to the cross because it was impossible for them, for them to see how the death of their Savior and their King could be anything but a setback, anything but a tragedy. It was small, inconsequential, and obscure in the sense that it seemed to be the very opposite of what would advance the kingdom of heaven. To them, the advance had seemed to stop dead in its tracks, even though we know otherwise. The event of the cross was also like leaven in the parable that Jesus just told, and that it wasn't through the visible conquering of kingdoms that the kingdom of heaven would spread. Instead, the kingdom of heaven would spread wherever people came to see and understand the cross for what it was and what it is the greatest act of sacrificial love that this world has ever known. And where this love is received, the kingdom of God continues its spread today. If you believe this morning that Jesus' death was not the end of a movement, but the mustard seed that began it all, and if you believe the kingdom is not about conquering, but humbly submitting yourself to the one who died in place for your sins and my sins so that we could live, then Jesus invites you to receive these realities and truths freshly this morning as we take communion. Don't feel obligated to rush into this. You're gonna have time over the course of the next song uh, to spend time praying and reflecting if you'd like uh, before you take the bread and the juice. Would you guys pray with me one more time before we continue with the time of worship? King Jesus, we submit our lives to you anew this morning. We thank you that your rule is not oppressive. It's not a forced rule. But it's a rule that we actually welcome into our lives as good because you proved that to us on the cross. Would you please ground our security in our identity as subjects of another kingdom, an eternal kingdom that's marked by peace and unity and love. 
And would you empower our small acts of faithfulness to affect heart change in the lives of those that we love who don't yet know you? We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.